Good morning. Hey, uh, I've told this story before at New Spring, so I hope you'll bear with me on this, but it really applies to what we're talking about uh, today. But it's been a little while now ago that I was driving down one of Wichita City streets, and uh, I won't tell you which one, but it was 45 miles an hour, which I love, a little bit faster than the 40 mile an hour. It feels like you get five miles an hour for free, you know? And I'm, I'm driving down this 45 mile an hour street and I actually have to get somewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly ADD and so I'm late to a lot of things and I'm really, really trying to get where I need to be. And, and I end up coming up behind this other car. It's a one lane, so I gotta keep driving behind this car. And this person was driving 30 miles an hour. And you know this is how it happens. It's always when you're in a hurry. It's always when you got to be somewhere that you're going to end up behind somebody going that much slower than you. And so I'm sitting there and I'm contemplating this. It's 45 mile an hour speed limit. And this person is doing 30 miles an hour. Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? And I was, I was getting a little upset. I, but I was trying to maintain my spirituality as a pastor. I was trying to think gracious and kind thoughts. I was trying to pray a prayer of, 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 of grace and, and, and peace and kindness over this obviously very slow person. And I, I wanted, I, you know, I'm, dear Lord, I'm going to praise you in this storm, even though I'm having to go 30 miles an hour instead of 45, which is what I really need to be going right now, you know. But no matter how hard I tried, there came a point at which my aggravation eclipsed my spirituality. Have you ever had that moment? Right? And, and I began to think that, and, and, and here's the deal. At this moment, when I'm really getting pretty aggravated about this, the Lord gives me a blessing and all of a sudden two lanes open up, right? Now I can get around this person and get where I need to go, 45 miles an hour, and, and, I, and if all I had done was just go around their car 45 miles an hour and get where I needed to go, that would have been fine. But I felt like maybe God was encouraging me to teach this person something. I wanted to help them. That's what I do, helping ministry. I felt like, you know, this is, this is one of those teaching moments, and God has called me to do that. And, and I really felt like if this person understood how egregious it is to drive 30 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, they would never do it again. So I thought, there are some ways that I can help communicate that message. First of all, I was driving a little red sporty thing with a six-speed at the time, and so I thought, you know, if I were to put my, my transmission into an unnecessarily low gear, as I'm going around, my car would make a lot of noise. And that's what I wanted. I wanted it to go, you know, as I went around so that they would realize how frustrated the driver behind them was. And then also, I waited until we were right by a speed limit sign. Big, bold, black numbers, four, five. And I thought, if I do that at the right moment, they will look up because they will hear the sound of my car. And as they look up, they will see the 45 mile an hour speed limit. They will recognize the error of their ways. I will be around them and going where I need to be. And we all win. So that's what I did. I sort of peeled out around this car. And as I'm doing that, I look over and I notice that in the rear driver window of this vehicle that I'm passing is a new spring decal. <laughs> and I think, uh-oh. You know, I think hopefully they didn't see me. I mean, I kind of went around pretty quickly. And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm just sort of thinking, well, the, hopefully, hopefully that's not going to be a thing, you know. But Murphy's Law is such that if you do this to somebody, you will be at a stoplight 15 seconds later right next to the person that you just passed, right? <laughs> That's what happened to me, and I'm sitting there going, dear Lord, please don't let them see who I am. Please don't let them recognize me. Don't let them recognize my car. I don't want them to know it was me. And do you know why I was doing that? 
because I did not want them to know that the person that did that to them is the person that stands on the stage on the weekend and talks about how God wants us to live our lives, right? I recognize that the version of me that I displayed to that person is not the version of me that I want them to see. Actually, it's not the version of me that I want to be. I don't know if this is you, but have you ever felt like when you get angry after the fact, you look back at it and you say, that's not the person that I want to be. I don't want to talk like that. I don't want to do stuff like that. I don't want to let my family down. I don't want to let my coworkers down. I don't want them to feel hurt by my actions. I don't want them to feel like they can't be themselves around me. I mean, you know what it's like where you just, you, you find yourself after the fact feeling regret about the anger and wishing you could go back and undo it, but feeling frustrated by the fact that it seems like all it takes is another thing that really gets you aggravated, one more trigger that comes along that ends up putting you right back there. And that's what's so difficult about anger, is that it's like we, we recognize that it's a problem, but it doesn't take much to put us right back in the place that we were before. As a matter of fact, we'll kind of start off our time with, with this idea uh, that anger is the easiest thing to dislike about ourselves, and yet it's the hardest thing to control. Right? It's, it's the easiest thing for us to get frustrated with our own life and say, why is it that I can't do better at this? Why is it that I yell at my kids? Why is it that I get so upset at, at, at people that work for me that I'm supervising? Why is it that little things become huge things? It's just a little thing and I shouldn't, you know, driving 30 miles an hour behind somebody 45, you know, I'm, I'm joking with you guys about how ridiculous it is because you and I both know it's a small thing, but we've also experienced how a small thing can become a big thing and it's frustrating because we go, why do I have to be that way? And so God is going to talk to us this morning through the story of Jonah. We were already in the story of Jonah last week, and we're going to finish out this week, and next week we're going to go to some different places. But, but we're going to talk about how God deals with anger, and specifically how he deals with us when we're right in the big, fat middle of one of those moments when we feel triggered into it. So it's going to be very helpful, and we're going to start off uh, with this verse, and it's in Ephesians chapter 4, and here's what the Bible says. It says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Now what does the word sin there mean? In the New Testament, anytime we see the word sin, what it means is it's anything that puts distance between us and God, right? The story of the Bible is that God came to this world and he wanted to make a connection with the imperfect people. God is perfect and we are not. And yet God wanted to bridge the divide and create a connection between the two of us. No matter how imperfect you are in this room, I'm here to tell you that God's mission in this world is to make a connection with you. I promise, I promise that is exactly what the entire message of the Bible is. But the thing about it is, no matter, once, you know, we can have a connection with God, we can have a relationship with God, but even then we can still do things that push us away from God God's character doesn't mean that God doesn't love us and that we don't have a relationship with him. It just means that we can end up putting ourselves in the, in, in the pathway of some very negative consequences when we create distance between us and God. And so here's what the Bible is saying. He, the, God is wanting us to understand that when we get angry, it is possible for us to do things that not only distance ourselves from our family, not only distance ourselves from our coworkers or other people in our lives, they actually could create distance between us and God. So it says, here's how a person would do that. A person would allow that to happen by letting Letting anger control you. Is anger good or bad? It's neither. It's neutral. It's just an emotion. 
You recognize God gave us anger like he gave us all the rest of the emotions. And and I've said this multiple times in messages before, so forgive me for repeating myself, but emotions are are neither good nor bad. So often I'll have somebody in my office, when they come in for couples coaching, they will tell me about their spouse, and it's it's not a stereotype thing. Sometimes guys say this about their wives, sometimes wives say this about their husbands, they'll say they're just way too emotional, as though emotions were a bad thing. Emotions are not a bad thing, emotions are a neutral thing. They're, they're like little warning lights on the dash of our vehicle, right? Those, those lights are neither good nor bad. They only exist to let us know if there's a problem under the hood, right? They let us know if something is, is, is wrong. Same thing with emotions. So if we experience sadness, it's like a little warning light that comes on the dash and says, you're losing something. If we experience anxiety, it's like a little warning light that comes on the dash that says, uh, something, something bad may happen. You need to pay attention. When we experience anger, anger is a warning light that comes on our dash that says there's a problem that needs to be solved. Right? So, and we'll, and we'll talk here in a minute about what the anger reflex is like, but, but it's neither good nor bad. God didn't say, don't ever become angry, because as we'll talk about in a minute, God gets angry sometimes. So it's not that God says that we're to never be angry. He says that when we get angry, we need to be careful not to let anger control us. Now, this construction here, control you, is very important that we understand in our, in our world, we would think of this more in the idea of identity theft, how many of us are scared to death of identity theft? We do not want that to happen. Some of us in this room, you're paying, you're paying for some sort of extra protection service to keep your identity safe, and you've got, you know, special, you know, you've got special tools to check your credit score on a regular basis and all that, just to make sure that nobody's getting a hold of your identity. Why do you care? You care because you know if somebody gets your identity, they could do destructive things with it that then you would have to come back and fix after the fact. See, that's the thing. When I talk about anger causing us to do things that then we regret, this is what is happening. Anger becomes something that we allow to steal our identity. It comes in and begins to rob us of our identity, and the anger that we hold in our hands becomes a destructive force, and it breaks things that later, after the fact, we have to come along and repair. Sometimes it breaks relationships. Sometimes it breaks opportunities. Sometimes it breaks physical stuff, you know? You, you, you get mad and you throw something, you slam something, you break something, and then you go, man, I'm going to have to fix that. Isn't that true? It's the way that anger works. And so God is telling us right off the bat, the goal here should be that when we get anger, angry, not to let anger take over who we are, not to let anger steal our identity and do destructive things that later we're going to have to pay for. And I think we all get this. Never. In my time as a couples coach, have I had somebody come in and brag about their anger, right? None of us, none of us are proud of it. I, usually what happens is I have a husband who's embarrassed when his wife talks about what he does when he gets angry. Or I have a, a, a wife who gets embarrassed when her, when her husband talks about what she does when she gets angry. We don't like that side of ourselves. And so the Bible's just saying it's because we let it control us. It's because we let it steal our identity. And God is going to give us some pretty practical ways that we can work through this. So understanding anger, though, is very, very important. I want to make sure that we get this. If you want to understand how the anger reflex was built to work in your system and also how Satan can hijack it because that's the message here right how does a how does a person's identity get taken over by anger it's because Satan wants to hijack something that God meant for good God gets angry anger anger is not a bad thing in and of itself but Satan wants to hijack it so what did God design anger to do the anger reflex that we have basically works this way 
The anger reflex happens when we have the feeling that it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. Now, often that can be a good thing. You open the newspaper and you read about someone who's been abused, somebody who's been taken advantage of, and we feel, uh, we, we feel a twinge of anger. That's good. We should feel it because God put anger in our spirit to be a reflex that we feel when something isn't as it should be. Sometimes we get a little angry at ourselves because we don't do what we should do for those that we love. We don't do what we should do um, in, in our lives. And so we feel a twinge of, of anger. But God, God built that in us to motivate us to solve a problem. Anger, is always, anger was always designed to help us solve something or to help us address a problem. But Satan understands that we've got this reflex that happens when we get that something shouldn't be a certain way. So Satan knows that if he can mess with our should, he can get our anger reflex hijacked. That's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the talk is when Satan messes with our shoulds and what we can do about it. And this is going to be, we're going to go back to the story of Jonah. And let me just walk you through this very quickly. Those of you who were here last week, you heard this whole story. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But in case you were absent last week, I want to make sure that, that we've got you up to speed. Story of Jonah works like this. It's a very small book in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that God came to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. At the time, there were both priests and prophets. Priests represented the people to God, and prophets represented God to people. Their job was to take God's message and distribute it to people, and that's what Jonah's job was. He was a pastor, he was popular, he probably had a pretty good life. And God came to Jonah and said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to go tell that city that I'm gonna destroy it. Well, that was a problem for a couple reasons. One was that Nineveh was a terrible place. Nineveh was a city without a conscience. They were, they were terrifying people. They had, they had zero moral backbone. They were known for being terrorists and torturers, and it was just not a place that anybody wanted to be. Frankly, I think Jonah was scared to go there. But beyond all that, Jonah understood something. In his head, he understood that if God wanted to just destroy Nineveh, he could do it without him. God didn't need to send Jonah to Nineveh to destroy it. Jonah understood that for God to send him to Nineveh, it really meant that God was giving them one last chance. And Jonah really just didn't want to be the messenger of that message. He didn't want to be the guy to go to Nineveh and say, God is giving you one last chance. First of all, it was scary. What if they get mad? That's kind of an unpopular message. But second of all, these people who had lived so completely different than him his whole life, his whole life had been spent trying to follow God and teach others how to follow God. Here's a city full of people who could care less about God. They've spent their life acting as though God does not matter. And now God is sending him over there to say, I'm giving you one last chance. What if they actually turned around and tried to do the right thing? Maybe that would have been the worst thing of all. And so Jonah gets a ticket to, 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 to board a ship to go as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could, but it, you heard last week, he gets on the boat, this terrible storm comes up, worse than the sailors had ever seen. They really believe that God must be uh, upset with them. God must be trying to, to, to communicate some sort of a message or trying to figure out, you know, how did we, how did we do this? How did we offend God? And, and these, aren't even, these aren't even people who believed in or feared the true God. And Jonah says, look, the, it's my fault. I'm the one who did this. I've been running from God. You, sh you just go ahead and throw me overboard. And then the, the, the storm is going to stop. I mean, Jonah's a little bit of a fatalistic guy. We'll see that a couple times in the story. He's like, you know, so I'm going to drown. Go throw me, over the, throw, throw me over the side of the boat, and then that'll fix the problem. So the guys do it. They throw him off the, the edge of the boat, but God's not done with Jonah yet. Why is God not done with Jonah yet? Because he's not done with Nineveh, 
right? He has a purpose and a mission, and he's expecting Jonah will eventually get the message. And part of how God designed Jonah getting the message is he arranged for there to be a massive fish that comes up and swallows Jonah whole. Now, you know, growing up, most of us heard of the story as Jonah and the whale. We have no idea whether this is a whale or not. All we know is that God created this earth in, uh, in six days, and so if God wants to make a fish big enough to swallow a person, he can do it, and that's exactly what the Bible said he did. Fish comes up and swallows Jonah. Jonah spends a period of time in the fish, and eventually the fish swims up to the shore and vomits Jonah out on the shore. That had to be just a beautiful sight to be around. Right? And now the Bible says the word of God comes back to Jonah, why? Because God is, God is tenacious about a calling. Those of you in this room that you know God has placed a calling on your life, and God has a mission and a calling for all of us. But you, when you've really sensed that God's put a calling in your life, you could, you could attest to this. God is tenacious about a calling. You can run, but God will find you, and he will come back to you, and he will say, I'm, I haven't changed. I still want you to do this. And so he goes to Jonah. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to pronounce judgment on the city. And this time Jonah says, okay, 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 I'll go. And he goes to Nineveh. He delivers God's message. God's going to come and he's going to destroy, he's going to wipe out this city. But the thing about it is, somehow the hearts of the Ninevites were open and they heard what Jonah was saying. And I don't think Jonah only talked about the fact that God was going to destroy the city. I truly believe that Jonah probably did talk a little bit about God's nature. And something with them clicked. Something, something that they heard worked. And they, they said, man, this is a terrible thing. We've got to do the right thing. We need to turn around. We need to show God that we care about him. And, 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 and if we do that, maybe he will be so generous to us that he'll back off of his decision to destroy our city. And that's exactly uh, what, what they did. They did anything that they could. As a matter of fact, they had heard, they didn't know much about what it meant to follow God, but they had heard that over in Israel, whenever they were really grieving over something or whenever they were trying to show God that they wanted to turn around, they would put burlap on, they would wear like burlap sacks and they would sit in ashes, in ash piles. And so they told all, everybody's got to do this. Everybody's got to get burlap bags on. Everybody's got to go, you know, all of a sudden there's a run on burlap in Nineveh. But everybody's got everybody's to put this stuff on. And then, then, the, then came the question, well, do the animals have to wear burlap or no, right? And so the guys in charge said, look, we don't know, but better safe than sorry, put burlap on the animals, right? So now you've got these little chickens running around with burlap sacks on them, you know? And I can't help but think that Jonah is standing there watching all of this and going, they're not even doing it right. They don't even know how to put burlap on for Pete's sake. I don't, I don't have time to, to mention this, but I'll mention it briefly. This is a little hobby horse for me. We're getting ready to do Judgment House. I love Judgment House. I, I mean, I get stoked when we get ready to do it and... Um, you, you know, there, there will be thousands of people that take the Judgment House tour, hundreds of people that make decisions for Christ, sometimes thousands. And, and always there'll be a few people standing on the sidelines with, with, with a little bit of a snarky comment. Not New Springers. It's very rare that this would come from a New Springer, but it'll always come from somebody who's kind of watching from the sidelines. And they'll make the comment, well, I just don't think they're doing that right. I don't think they're presenting it right. They didn't include every, you know, and then, and then you know, the, the, people, the people who prayed to receive Christ, I'll bet that they didn't even pray the prayer right. And besides, how do, how do you know that they legitimately changed their heart? How do you, you know that they're legitimately making a connection with God? And I just want to say, give me a break. We, we read about a God who reaches out to us and says, I'm just waiting for you to say yes because I've done. I mean, if God is willing to send his son to die on the cross, that ought to communicate a message to us that there is just about nothing 
nothing on his side possible that he could do that he hasn't done. He's done everything possible on his side. He reaches out and is saying, all I'm looking for from you is for you to reach back out to me. And to think that a human being who reaches back out to the God who loves them and says, I want to have a relationship with you is not doing enough. I don't even know where that comes from. And Jonah's doing it. He's standing over on the sidelines and he's saying, I just don't think that they're doing it right. I don't think it could be legitimate. I don't think it's really, I think it's just, you know, they're, they're scared. They're scared of God incinerating their city. Well, sure they were, right? That may have been, God might have wanted to communicate that there was something really negative gonna happen if they didn't turn around. That's part of how this worked. And they said, we wanna turn around and God started to, to get in a mode of showing mercy and somehow Jonah got that. He got that God was starting to think about showing them mercy. He didn't like it very much. So we're gonna just read through this. You saw a little bit of this last week. But in Jonah chapter three, the Bible says that when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. Don't you love that God can change his mind? I mean, some of us, we were going through some very, we were going down a very destructive path and God was trying to get our attention. And some of the things God was doing to get our attention wasn't very pleasant. I love the fact that God can change his mind when he sees that we're ready to, to make a turnaround. He changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. So Jonah is a pastor. This ought to have just made him ecstatic because pastors are supposed to be about people making connections with God. Pastors are supposed to be about getting excited when people, I mean, you think about this, the Bible tells us that all heaven rejoices when one person comes to faith in Christ and if all heaven is rejoicing, the pastors on the earth probably ought to try to get in on some of that. But instead of doing that, the Bible tells us that the change of plans, not carrying out the destruction that, that Jonah had said was gonna happen, greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. As a matter of fact, this, this construction greatly upset. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, it means he, he declared it a disaster. It's a disaster that this is happening. And so he decides he's going to talk to God about it. And, and here's the thing, too. Jonah's going to talk to God about it in a very authoritative way. The Bible says he complained to the Lord about it, but that word, the, the, where we get the phrase he complained about it, in the Hebrew, it's, it's very much like when a prosecuting attorney is making an argument. It's like, I'm, I'm making a judgment about these people that I want the judge to carry through with. It's almost as though Jonah is saying, I get the idea that the defense has put on this show for the judge, and now the judge is having this little tender-hearted moment because the defense has pulled the wool over his eyes. I'm just gonna come back in and remind him of the prosecution's argument so that we can go ahead and go forward with the sentence, right? And so he complained to the Lord about it, and he said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? Now, look at what, look at what Jonah's mad about. That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew, this is what he's mad about. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, right? This is what he's upset about. He says, uh, you're slow to get angry, you're filled with unfailing love, and you're eager to turn back from destroying people. And then look at, look at what he says next. So just kill me. Now this is an adult temper tantrum. This is the equivalent of an adult, you know the little two-year-old kicking and screaming, falling on the floor, trying to get dad and mom's attention, the world has come to an end. This is the adult version. Jonah says to God, just kill me. Just kill me. He said, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Now let me ask you a question. Is it enough to make us angry that something we predicted does not happen? No. 
right? Suppose your spouse always leaves the milk out after they pour their cereal bowl in the morning. And you come to expect that when you come into the kitchen in the morning, the milk jug is gonna be sitting out there on the counter. That's your expectation. If somebody were to ask you, do you think tomorrow morning the milk jug's gonna be out on the counter when you walk in, you would predict that it is going to be out on the counter. But if you walked in that next morning and the milk jug was not out on the counter but the milk jug was in the refrigerator where it was supposed to be, would you be angry? No, you'd be thrilled. Because it's not about, we don't get angry when our predictions don't come to pass. We get angry when what we think should happen does not happen. See, Jonah isn't saying, I'm mad because I predicted that Nineveh was going to be destroyed, and now it's not going to be. He's saying, I'm mad because I predicted it, and I think it should happen. I think you should destroy Nineveh. It's a city without a conscience. City of terrorists. Come on, God. They're pulling the wool over your eyes. Do something here. I mean, you know, send the fire down. Leave a scorched mark where that city used to be. That's what they deserve. But I know you, God. I know you're all merciful and stuff. You know, you're all full of unfailing love and you're always like slow to get angry. You're always like calming down. I don't know why you're always calming down. I don't feel like calming down, God. Why are you calming down? It's time for you to act, time for you to do something. Come on, God, let's, let's, make with the, let, let's make with the mushroom cloud something. God, let's do something to this city because that's what I came out here for. What did I do this for? What did I leave Israel for? What did I spend all that time in that belly of that fish for? What did I come out here and tell them things for? By the way, God, I just want you to remember that you said in your word that prophets are supposed to only say things that are gonna happen. I did what you said and now you're gonna make a liar out of me and it isn't fair and I'm gonna be mad and I'm gonna throw a tantrum, so just kill me. I don't have much to stand on on this, though, in criticism of Jonah, because I've thrown quite a few adult temper tantrums in my life. Well, you could just ask Wendy. She could tell you about several good ones, I'm sure. One one happened just really recently. I was, was, um, it wasn't wasn't just a couple weeks ago, Wendy and I were in Houston. I was doing a couple's uh, a marriage retreat down there for a church. And um, so I was very excited about the fact that we, were, we had direct flights. We never have direct flights. You know how it is in Wichita. Everywhere you go, it's a two-legged thing. You've got to go someplace for a layover and then go wherever you're going. So, but Houston, there is a direct flight to Houston out of Wichita. I was so excited about that. Really short flight. Got us where we needed to be. We left town. We got where we needed to be. It was perfect. No issues. No problems. On the way back, Wendy said, you know, there's rain predicted. And I said, ah, it's not going to be a real problem. I've, I've had lots of flights when it was raining. We get to the airport and we go in. And it is, it is definitely coming down. And Wendy said, I hope our plane doesn't get delayed. And I said, it's not going to get delayed. It's really not that bad. And then a few minutes later, as we're sitting in this, and if you've been to the Houston, if you've been to Bush Airport, you know that if you're flying back to Wichita, you're in this huge commuter area where there's all these different waiting, there's a big massive waiting room that they hold you in before you go down to where the planes are. And uh, as we were sitting there, I noticed it was raining so hard that you couldn't see out the window. I mean, I've never seen it that bad before. The rain was coming so far, you, you literally couldn't see out. And as the rain cleared up for just a minute, what I saw was plane after plane after plane after plane after plane after plane lined up trying to take off and nothing was taking off. And then the lady came over the thing and she said, no planes are gonna be taken off until the storm passes. Everything is gonna be delayed. I know the signs on the, on the board say not delayed yet, but, but trust me, everything is gonna be delayed out of Houston. And I thought, oh, great. 
I mean, we had planned to get home at a certain time so we could see the girls before they needed to go to bed. And, you know, we we had everything worked out. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, this is messing up all the plans that we had. And honestly, it wasn't a big deal. But to me, in the moment, it was a big deal. And I was kind of sitting there and sort of seething about it. And... Um, I'm kind of a quiet, angry person. I don't know if you have anybody in your life who's, who's like that, but I'm kind of, you know, Wendy knows it, it's, it's more concerning if I stop talking than if I am talking, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just sort of seething, and then out of nowhere, I just, and I'm in this big terminal, and, there, and it's full because no planes are taken off. Everybody's sitting on, all of a sudden, I just, I hate United. <laughs> and Wendy looked over at me, and she said, yeah, what did they do? And I said, well, look at us. We're not on the plane. And my wife, who's gentle and wants to help me understand the error of my ways, says to me, I didn't realize they called for all this rain. <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? When we, when we throw the adult temper tantrum, we're destructive. You know, I'm sitting there and, you know, no, no telling. You know, it's bad enough I'm just peeling out doing Mario Andretti's around New Springers. No telling how many New Springers were there somewhere in the Houston airport while their pastor's having a temper fit. I hate United. Man, I wonder what's wrong with pastor, you know? We get destructive. Sometimes it's worse. We're in the middle of a fight with our spouse and we say, we should just get divorced. You don't like it, you know what you could do. You can leave me. Or we're talking to our coworkers. You know what? My boss has never treated us right. He's not, my boss never treated me right. I should just leave this job. And we say and we do things that are destructive. And the funny thing is, we think that in, in sort of getting revenge for how we feel, we're going to make things better. But the funny thing is, when we try to get revenge for how we feel, we actually make things worse for ourselves. I don't think most people who tell their spouse in the middle of a fight that they want to get a divorce actually want to get a divorce. If they did get a divorce, it would hurt them. It's like the things that we do to try to make the, make the score even will backfire on us and actually wound us. And I think, I think God really wants Jonah to understand that this is what's happening to him, that it's backfiring. And so in, in verse 4, God comes to Jonah, and he asks Jonah the question that God would ask any of us in the middle of an adult temper tantrum. If God could come sit next to me at, United, at, at, the, at the United Gate there in Houston, this is what I believe God would have asked me. Because the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? That's all he says. Is it right for you to be angry about this? Now God could have said all kinds of stuff. You know, God could have given him the five-point outline of the latest anger management book from the Barnes & Noble shelf, the self-help book. You know, here's, here's how you manage anger. Here's how you get it under control. Five, you know, five things that you need to do to rein it in. And instead, God comes and doesn't give him five bullet points. He gives him one question, and the question that he gives him is, is it right for you to be angry about this? Now, always growing up, I thought that word right meant, because often in the Old Testament, the word right is related to the word righteous. And so the, the word in the original language has to do with being fair or being just or being equal. And so for, for so long, I used to think that what God was asking here is, is it, you know, look at, you just, you just came out of the belly of a fish and I've been so gracious to you. Is it fair for you to, not, for, for you to be angry about this? And maybe there's a little bit of that going on there, but that's not what that word means. In the original language, this word right means is it making it better? Is it fixing it? And the word angry here, it means to burn up. It means to overheat. Literally, 
in the Jonathan vernacular, here's another way of putting it, God is saying, is blowing a gasket about this making things better? If God could come sit next to me at the United Gate at Bush International Airport, I truly believe God would say, Jonathan, is blowing a gasket about this making things better? Is it fixing it for you? Is it solving your problem? Is it getting you closer to a solution? Are you feeling better? How many of us know that when we're angry, we don't feel better? Did you know that 90% of people say that the aftermath of their anger makes them feel worse, not better? Right? Our heart rate goes up. We get tense. We get, you know, the palms of our hands get sweaty. Our body gets all geared up and does all kinds of crazy stuff. And in the end, you know, we feel, what, what do you feel after you feel angry? You feel stressed out. You feel regretful. You know, you don't feel like yourself. And God comes to us and says, are you, are, does it make you feel better? To do that? Does it make you feel better to vent like that? Does it make you feel better to get so upset, to get so angry? And you know the story because we talked about it last week. Jonah says, yes, it is right for me to be angry. And he goes and he, he sets up a little, he, he leaves the city, goes off to the east of the city, and makes a little shelter with some leaves there. And he, he, he's going to watch because God's deadline has come due to destroy the city. He feels like he's made a good case. I'm going to watch God destroy the city. And you remember we talked about this Last week, that God allows a plant to grow up to give him shade, and then over time, God allows a worm to come and eat up the plant, and now the sun bears down on Jonah, and Jonah feels like it's unbearable, and God comes to him one more time, and he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So let's, talk, let's not talk about the city for right now. Let's talk about the plant. Is it right for you to be angry about this? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is exactly what God wants us to think about when we're angry because he did it twice with Jonah. He even gave Jonah two different illustrations to work the problem with. Problem was, Jonah didn't, didn't get the math right in the first place. He kept messing up. God asked him about the plant. He says, is it right for you to be angry about this? And Jonah was so immature at the moment. He was so still in the middle of his temper tantrum. He said, yes, it's good. And I, I should be angry enough to die about this. Jonah just has this thing about dying. Throw me off the boat. Just kill me now. I'm angry enough to die over the plant. The guy, you know, the guy needs to work through that. But, and, and here's the deal. I believe the story of Jonah has a great ending because who was there to write the, the book? Who wrote the book of Jonah for us? I believe it was Jonah himself. I think he got his head straight eventually. But I think God wants us to learn something. I really think it's important for us to get this question into our gear work. Is it right for us to be angry? So we're going to spend the rest of our time on this, and then we'll be done. When we started off, we opened up with a verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 20, 26. Let me, let's go back to that verse. Let's finish that verse out and look at the next verse as well. Um, after, the, after the part that we read about not letting anger control us, it says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. We've heard all kinds of different versions of that growing up. Don't go to bed mad and all that stuff. Um, this word angry here, still we're talking about don't, go to, don't, don't let the sun go down while you're overheating. Don't let the sun go down while you're burning up because you're angry. And then it says, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, what that word means, foothold, it means a room it means, it literally means that we rent the devil room in our lives by letting anger, by, by letting anger take root. And especially the word angry there means an angry mood. 
How many of us have ever gotten into an angry mood? And here's what, here's what the Bible's saying. The Bible's saying that if we get into an angry mood and we let it bake there for a while, if we let it simmer and we don't get rid of the angry mood, we just keep holding it, that eventually the angry mood that we hold will eventually become a room and it will become a room that will get rented out to Satan because Satan will find that space and he will enter into that and he will take his destructive nature and he'll start breaking things that we'll have to come and fix later. So he says, be careful. Don't let anger control you because anger makes room for the devil. It goes from being a reflex to being a mood and then it becomes a pit that we have a hard time crawling out of. And this makes sense, right? Because we know God creates and heals. Satan wounds and destroys. So if when we're angry, we're wounding and destroys, that should tell us something. Let me show you something really quickly about what can we do about this. Because this is one of the things I'm big on when I do couples coaching. I always want to know what can we do about the problem. Up until the point that we know what we can do, there's not a, knowing about the problem is helpful. At some point we've got to figure out what can we address. Because when we get angry, there's some different parts that are happening, right? First off, we have the belief, right? I have a belief that the world should be this way, or that wives should be this way, or that husbands should be this way, or my paycheck should be this much, or the situation should be, or I shouldn't have to wait in line this long, or this person should be more respectful to me, whatever. We have these should rules in our life, but then there's a problem. Basically what the problem is, the reality of my life does not match the shoulds of my life. Something is happening that is a mismatch to the way I think the world should work. And so then we have the anger reflex that God built in us that tells us there's a problem that needs to be solved. And then we respond, we get, and we get engaged to do something about it. Now here's what I want to show you. Most people will spend most of their time, when they're trying to deal with an anger problem, they'll spend most of their time in these two middle things. I'm going to either fix the problem, and, and this is kind of a stereotypical thing, so forgive me, so, some folks in here will be the flip, but you guys, especially know this, right? Guys, in, in marriage, we tend to be fixers. Your wife comes home, she tells you about her problems. She really just wants you to listen. She wants you to understand and connect with what she's saying. And we want to give her a five-point bulleted outline of the things that she can do to fix her life and be in a fantastic place immediately, right? So, but we, we either want to fix the problem, and I think when we deal with anger, we feel like that's what we're going to do. We're going to fix the problem by engaging uh, whatever whatever solution we find, or we just want to turn off the anger reflex. I just get too angry, so I need to not be angry. I'm going to turn it off like a light switch. I'm just, I got to train myself not to get angry anymore. But here's what I want to tell you. These two things are the two things you can do the least about if you can do anything about them. The anger reflex is something that is just part of who you are. The problem, sometimes you can do something about the problem. Most of the time, you won't be able to do something about it. Actually, the only things that we really have control over are our beliefs and our responses. That's where we have some, some area that we can work on. So in the last few minutes of our talk, I just want to take you to two very quick questions that can help you adjust your belief and your response. Here we go. Here's the first question. The first question is this. Am I ready to wield the power of should? Am I ready to wield the power of should? First of all, we, we know that sometimes we're not because we know that a lot of times what feels right to us isn't, right? The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 14, there's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Right? We know that just because something feels right doesn't mean that it is, and we, we experience this with our kiddos, right? Your four-year-old wants the four dozen Krispy Kremes before they go to bed, and you want to tell them you can have one, 
and they throw a temper tantrum because it would feel right to eat a ton of Krispy Kremes, but you know as a parent that what feels right isn't always right. So we have to ask ourselves when we feel angry, is, is, is what, what I think should be, is that what feels right or is it right? At a point, we know that only God is the arbiter of what's right. Only God knows everything. So at a point, we have to say only God's shoulds are the shoulds that matter. But beyond that, we have, to, we have to think about the issue of I need to make sure that I'm qualified to address this wrong. I need to make sure I'm qualified to talk about should. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Right? He says, at first, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye and let me tell you how it should be. Let me tell you how you should do this. Let me help you fix this. Let me help you find a solution. When you can't see past the log, the big old huge beam in your own eye, that's the definition of a hypocrite, right? First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I love this. Andy Stanley says, calls this yanking the plank. He says, yank the plank, get the big beam out of your eye first, and then you can address what should be. I gotta ask myself, when I, when I wanna address a should in Wendy's life, when I feel angry and I wanna tell Wendy how she should be, God says, before you ever go there, Jonathan, you better make sure that you're being how you should be. That's a big deal because I'm not ready to wield the power of should before I'm being how I should be. So that's why we get so destructive. Should is powerful. Some of us, there's some folks in this room who grew up in a very shaming sort of home and your parents put you down whenever you didn't do something that was exactly the way they wanted to and it was destructive and it became a destructive force in your life. How did that happen? It was destructive because they were wielding this incredibly powerful thing called should and if a person isn't ready to wield some, a powerful thing called should, they'll do tremendous damage with it. It's like letting somebody play with a, with a loaded gun as though it were a toy. Shoulds are very, very powerful, and we should only use them when we're qualified. We've got to make sure that we take the beam out of our eye before we address what's going on with someone else. Here's the second question, and that is, am I trying to do God's job? I love this verse in Romans where God says, don't take revenge but leave room, I love that, leave room. We talked about that when we get angry it's, and we hold an angry mood, it's like creating room for Satan. But he says, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine. God is saying, this is my job. It is mine to avenge. What do we mean here with avenge? Because we use the, the term vengefulness or vengeance with a very negative connotation here, but we're saying, God is saying it's mine to make it equal. It's mine to make it right. It's mine to fix it. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And somebody says, amen. Finally, Pastor Jonathan got to something I want to hear um, because seriously, I would like to heap some burning coals on this person's head right now. Here's the thing, and I, I didn't say this well last night. I hope I can say it well in, in, in this service. We talk about anger. Almost always in the New Testament, it's, 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 talk, it's talking about burning, about this incredible heat that comes from anger, and we feel it. We, you know, even in our bodies, we feel flushed when we get angry. But anger is a social emotion, and people like to spread it because they don't want to have all that heat on their own. They, they want the heat to get evenly spread. I felt that in the middle of that United Terminal, I thought everybody else should be just as angry as I am right now. Do you know why? Because then it wouldn't feel as uncomfortable for me to deal with the heat of what I was feeling if everybody else would share it with me. That's what I wanted, 
right? But what the Bible is saying, God says, if, if somebody is being your enemy and they're showing anger towards you and they're burning up with anger towards you, he says, I want you to rewire the reflex. Do the opposite of what feels normal. Do the right thing for that person and then you will prove to them you are not gonna share the heat with them. They're gonna have to deal with the heat on their own. And who knows, maybe the discomfort of dealing with all that heat will make them realize that it's not right for them to be angry about this. That's what God is saying. God says, listen, let me do my job. It's my thing. It's not your thing. I'll close this out. I had a, a little bit more that I was going to share, but I think we'll be done here because I'm already in overtime. My dad has told this story for years. It's my, one of my favorite stories. When you go up a pastor's kid, um, you, you get to pick out what you think are your dad's favorite, what your favorite illustrations your dad uses. This has always been one of my favorites. But he tells a story of a, a lady who was trying to catch, she was, she was on a long journey, she'd had one train ride, and she was at the train station getting ready to catch another train to go where she needed to go, and uh, she stopped in at the little snack shop there, and she bought a bag of cookies and a newspaper, and she was just going to wait for, you know, the time for her train to be ready to leave, but she noticed there was no place to sit, everything was, was every table was, was pretty full, but there was this one table where this, was, this guy was sitting, but nobody was sitting across from me, so she said, do you mind if I sit here? And he said, no problem. So she takes out her newspaper, and she starts to kind of read through it, and, and um, she gets hungry. She takes out one of her cookies, and she starts to uh, eat it, but as she reaches for that first cookie, she notices that the guy sitting across from her reaches for, the, for one of the cookies at the same time, and she thinks, well, this is weird. And not only does he reach for the cookie, but as she's reaching out too, he smiles at her. <laughs> and she thinks, I don't like this very much. But whatever. And she eats one of the cookies. She's reading through the paper. And she reaches out for another cookie. And at the same time, he reaches out again. And he smiles at her. And she thinks, this guy is certifiably crazy. And they kind of go through this routine, doing it over and over again. And finally, they get to the last cookie. They both reach out at, for it at the same time. He grabs it first, and he takes it, and he breaks it in half and gives her half of it and smiles. And she thinks, that is enough. I've had enough of this. She slams her paper shut. She gets up, and she walks away, and she goes towards her train, and she, she opens up her purse to find her train ticket, and there was her bag of cookies in her purse. She'd been eating his cookies the whole time. You know why Jonah was mad? Jonah was mad because he thought it was his thing to make it right with Nineveh. And God said, it's not your thing, it's my thing. See, sometimes we have to say, you know what, I've been eating God's cookies. I've been trying to do God's job. I've been trying to play his role. I've been thinking it was my thing to get my spouse to be the way they need to be. I thought it was my thing to get my boss to be the way that they needed to be. I thought it was my job to make my kids be what they needed to be. But at some point we have to say, you know what, God, there are gonna be moments when I feel like the world is not as it should be. But making what isn't what it should be is not my thing, it's your thing. And so when I humble myself and get on God's agenda, maybe I'll get to play a role. God sent Jonah because he wanted to make things right. Maybe I'll get to play a role in helping things be what they should be for my kids and what they should be in my work and what they should be in my marriage. But ultimately, the only way I'm gonna conquer anger is to be able to step back and say, but God, there's still your cookies, it's still your job, it's still your thing. And in the end, making it right is up to you. The Bible says that when we let God make things right, he doesn't just make things right. Look through the Bible and see how God says that when we let God do his thing, 
He blesses us more than we could ever possibly imagine. And we get out of that angry snit and we step out of it and we say, you know what, God, what does the Bible say? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know what? Someday a plane will take off. I can handle that. I can let this be your thing. God, you make it right because if I try to make it right, I'm gonna end up being in the wrong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that you've given us a way out of anger and that you've shown us that when things aren't as they should be, that you can make them right. Maybe the way that you would make them right is um, maybe not the way that we would immediately envision, but it's so much better than anything that we could come up with on our own. Father, I pray for every person in this room who struggles some days in their life with anger. I pray a prayer of blessing over them that they would have the opportunity to pause and calm down in the midst of those difficult moments and recognize that you are in control, to give it to you and to be able to know that you are at work fixing what isn't as it should be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning.